right? It's about understanding as white women, what is that white fragility? How does your privilege play into the things that you've been able to access? What can you do with that to actually lift up and empower those voices in a different kind of a way? Hey ladies. Hey ladies and welcome back to Herspective. And I love our little chats that we have pre-intro. I've noticed that we've been doing that lately. Like this is our time that we catch up with each other. Like every week we take some time to like get to know what's going on in each other's lives the past week and then we do this. It's just like this is our time. We have our little I know date. and it's sad because obviously it used to be like real life dates or just yes. more but like it's so busy lately don't you find yeah i don't know though yes life is moving at a strange pace i don't i feel like everybody's feeling that i've had a lot of these conversations and everybody just sounds and feels like they're just kind of like non-stop yeah. whether it's work family even just friends like events but at the same time it also seems like there's, there's nothing still nothing to ever. do so i don't know it's a weird yeah it's a weird like time we're in maybe because of the weather's changing and it's getting dark yeah. and cold and you just feel the second like, it starts to get dark and cold and i believe it's this weekend we have the, like the daylight savings which i fucking hate anyways but the second it gets into this area of the year it's hibernation it feels like like it'll be 6 30 and yeah. dark so it's, it's like why am i out so late like i need to get home but it's 6 30 <laughs> yeah <that laughs> but the other thing is. too is today as we record it's november 1st I still haven't even watched my scary movies for Halloween yet because October flew by and now in Christmas season, which is Octo- uh, is November 1st, fair game, Christmas season, I'm watching scary movies. Mariah is on ice right <laughs> Mariah now. is, no, no, she's ready to go. After C- Halloween, it's fair game for Christmas starting today. Right. Mariah is no longer on ice. She's in the Correct. thawing process. That's like <laughs> yeah. my favorite meme right now because I'm like so true. Like once yeah. the first time you hear the Mariah Christmas any song that yeah. is like in the mall, in the store, in the grocery store, wherever on the radio, you're like, we are in Christmas town, ladies and gentlemen. I listen to it all the time. Well, I, even when I it's not Christmas. Listen to her Christmas <laughs> album all, during not Christmas. I love Mariah. Secondly, <laughs> I love Christmas. But like I said, this year is fucking weird. And even with the lack of things to do, it, it's it's very strange. Like I said, I'm still not even caught up to Halloween and that's already happened. Yeah, it did come on fast. Like I feel like I bought my kids their costumes like pretty early. Like we were pretty prepared earlier on this year. And then it was just like I blinked and then it was Halloween and then they went trick-or-treating. And like when this is coming out, it was two nights ago. So they went trick-or-treating and now Halloween's over. And like that's it. <laughs> And now is Christmas. And basically tomorrow is Christmas. And the other good thing, I know, <laughs> it's Christmas season <laughs> right now. Like my tree is halfway out the closet. Oh but... <laughs> my God. You're one of those. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. Um, but I was talking to a client of mine today and it's hard to feel Christmassy because normally I probably would have it up uh, really, really close around now, but it's like 12 degrees and beautifully sunny out. It does not feel like Christmas season at all. It's like California. I'm not Christmas. complaining. <laughs> yeah. I mean, which is great. 
I'm not complaining at all, but just it's it's a weird fucking year. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> well, we always put our tree up usually, and I don't know why. I guess it's just coincidental, and then it just kind of stuck because we have no interest in the CFL. But I don't I don't even know what the CFL Super Bowl is called, like the Grey Cup. That's when we put our tree up, the weekend of the Grey Cup. <laughs> don't ask why. It just when is, is that? Who knows? What? <laughs> I think you it's base like, it around this like arbitrary event on tv i know it's a weird thing this but is a I'm shocking not... piece of information you're telling me right now <laughs> i'm so surprised it's so random but the thing is i you know what i'm not a themed person i love the holidays and i love like the events like halloween but i'm not someone who wants to decorate like the tree is beautiful it's fun the kids love it of course and it symbolizes Christmas but I at the same time hate every minute of it because I'm like uh then I have to take it down and then I have to put everything away and it makes a mess and like we take our tree down like January 2nd I take my it's tree down for like two weeks boxing day oh. I, mine is I take mine down right away it's now oh, so you put yours up silly like ridiculously early and then take it down at an, right away like one. if I could I would take it down Christmas day night like <laughs> <laughs> Christmas is done because now it's getting into my birthday. Right. It's not it can't two be overshadowed by. No. But my sister-in-law, I, I don't know if it's a religious thing or what. She keeps the tree up and I forget what it's called. It's something weird like Little Christmas or something, which is like January 15th. Like she will not take the tree down. I'm like, there. you know how many holidays and things have, like my birthday, New Year's, my mom's birthday. So many things have happened. It's so past Christmas. Her tree it, it freaks me out. Anyways, I like my tree down right away. Well, listeners, we need to know, are you a put the tree up like November 2nd person? Or are you more like me where it's like as close to Christmas Reasonable. as possible? <laughs> and then are you like Jess where you take it down the minute Christmas day is over? Or like other people that leave it up to, <laughs> for an obnoxious amount of time into January? Or are you normal? Is it like, like me. mid-December to New Year's, say? Yeah, that's my time frame. I could never leave my tree up. To, like, what? It's so much... As much as I love my tree and Christmas spirit, the second Christmas is done, it's pure clutter and needs to be put away. Agreed. But we yeah. do, like... You know, you can't see everybody and do everything all in December ahead of Christmas when you want to do friends and family and different things. Like, you know, there's so many people to see and the little get togethers that you want to have. So we like to have the tree because it's still like we're celebrating a Christmas thing, you know, after Christmas with this group of friends or this, you know, person or some of our family that we didn't see over the actual holidays. So that's why we do it. And then as soon as all of those things are done, tree is down back in the basement. Yeah. Yeah. There's no reason for it to be up. It would really stress me out to have it out. Any longer. (laughs) Any longer. Like, like I could even almost stay up late on Christmas day and do it if that wasn't extremely psychotic. Yeah. That is borderline psychotic, but you know, that's fair. My mom tells me that every year. She's like, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Thanks, mom. Yeah. Well, in other news, something that I have to bring up because I don't think we've ever felt so like seen and validated. <laughs> we've talked about how. Well, hold on. I just want to preface this with the evidence that we are listened to by and really also important we people. Obviously, have genius ideas. Clearly. Well, yeah, and it just shows that our podcast is 
reached the billionaires of the world. <laughs> the elite. They listened <laughs> to us. Clear, that's clearly what happened here. Um, but yeah, what I'm what we're getting at is the fact that Elon Musk announced today that if the UN could prove that six billion dollars could end world hunger then he would basically sell his tesla stock and the company take the proceeds which i guess he's saying of that or i don't know if it's completely valued at six billion whatever he from his fortune he would take six billion dollars and donate it to end world hunger but the on the condition of that the UN has to provide like a very clear strategy plan of how the money would be spent. Totally fair. But the point is we feel validated because (laughs) how many times on this show have we talked about like if a couple million slash billionaires of the world could just toss a couple mil or bill in this case, how many problems would it fix? Like, for instance, world yeah. fucking hunger? Well, like- I'd like to see that breakdown because that could potentially influence other people with an obscene amount of money because let's be real, he, he's talking about $6 billion. Do you think he will even notice that loss like out of yeah, his pocket? Yeah, I don't know what he's valued at, like what his net worth is. Um, I didn't look that up. But it's in the billion, like, I think he's in the hundreds of billions. Like him and Jeff Bezos yeah, are like neck hundreds and hundreds of billions, yeah. But like the fact that one person could end global hunger yeah. is maddening and a whole problem in itself quite but frankly. actually yeah i'm kind of thinking about him saying if you show me how i'll do it well why don't okay and only if he's talking about wanting his funds to go to like valid charities or like you know actual provable ways like it's going to a good cause it's also like you know what you should just give some money away if you can just get rid of six billion and you know people fucking need it like you know there are problems in and and countries that need it like all over the world yeah exactly all over the world for yeah, many different things not just hunger though it's definitely though. a weird like you know thing to be said to happen and I know he was like yeah. reacting to a comment that was made by someone on that was on CNN um, but it's also like. In one hand, like, amazing if you would and could actually do this. Amazing. Like, just trying to fathom what a world looks like that is nowhere is suffering from hunger. Well, if he does hunger. are no longer suffering. If he does, like, a a fraction of his, you know, fortune, which, because that's what it would be. Six billion versus hundreds of billions. So if he gave a fraction of his fortune away for hunger and Jeff Bezos did... And not, maybe even if they did less, like more than a fraction, because clearly even if they got rid of half their money, they wouldn't even notice. Or even if they got rid of like 75% of their fortunes, they probably wouldn't notice. So imagine if they all did this and he did hunger, another one did like climate issues, whatever, like we would have no fucking problems. I mean, we'd have problems, but we wouldn't have those kinds of problems. Right. And for me, it's two things, right? I look at it and I think, wow, because I think Elon Musk is a pretty big philanthropist. I've read things where he's not like so obsessed with wealth, but it's obviously the perk of his genius and like the things that he's designed. And because of his wealth, he can continue to do the develop these technologies and things like that. So I mean, good on you. You've done it. You deserve it. You've earned it. But on the other hand, it feels very publicity stunty because, you know, you've put that out there for the world to see. And then if they can't prove how that money would get disseminated and how it could yeah, like potentially, so then you're just going to be like, nope, that's past, moving on. Yeah. Like, never mind all you starving well, children. That's, 
Yeah. They could yeah, I could it. help you. I could, yeah. but I won't because the UN yeah. didn't come up That's with a sound I mean. plan. Like it's a, it's in yeah. a, at the same time also gross in my opinion. Yeah, um, yeah. It's a little. So offensive. I will be following this. This will probably be somewhat of a mainstay for a little while on the show. In the I intro fucking because, hope like, so. I'm very curious to see how this rolls out, or do, we, or is it like any other media where something gets it just gets swept under the rug and we move on and no. we've all forgotten about it because i hope not like that is just to me such a huge 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 statement to make yeah. and i don't you know i have no idea how that would work i'm not going to pretend like you know this would be a simple plan to develop because again you're you're it's not just like you drop off a gift basket at every single person's home that's you know suffering from poverty or yeah, one you know time. would be considered in this group of people that are starving um you know it has to be sustainable it has to end world hunger kind of permanently right it can't be this like oh this week we've ended world hunger but next yeah. week it's yeah. back um, and you've got so many governments um, and all these hundreds of countries that you'd be up against that unfortunately are corrupt. And we know this. And the yeah. other side of it, yeah, and I so will wrap much to on it. this, but my other point is like the fact that these people exist that could end world hunger and like you said, all the other, like many, many other issues in the in the world that they can, but we haven't or these people haven't, this very like sp- like specific group you almost have to, it almost brings to light the fact that they don't want to, right? Like the elite and, you know, going kind of conspiracy theory here though, it's like that group of elites that controls everything. To me, I feel like this is terrifying to them. And it also makes me wonder, because I've always thought this, is Elon like a good guy or a bad guy in the like fight against the elite (laughs) elitists and stuff like that? He's, he's sort of on an island of, of his own. So yeah, totally. And I would love to hear what our listeners think, because I just think this is a really interesting topic and something like no one's ever said this. No one's ever done anything like this. No one's publicly announced something like that. But then at the same time, you just take it away if, if it can't be proven. Like, yeah, how, you know, it, it's but crazy. think about so. how much this would would help too. it's not just sick. Here's six billion dollars. Um, OK, and then you people figure out a little plan and draw it up. It's how many jobs would be created which could sustain you know future you know prevention because obviously if you start getting money you're going to start not being hungry so these types of things implemented would it it would have to change so much there'd be whole new industries implemented into these countries and cities and villages or whatever the fuck um it, it would just be so good like how they could learn how to be sustainable for themselves like implement that kind of knowledge like there is so many good things that could come from this and it would be, well, it would be revolutionary for countries, for the world, for history, right? Well, imagine so, that being associated with your name. Elon Musk ends world hunger. A singular man's fortune ended world hunger. The and it's headline, not even that much of a fortune. Headline. But it is, it's not even that much of a fortune. It's only $6 billion, which obviously is obscene, but for him, it's not even a fraction it's not yeah. even what is it like one percent of his money i think it this the article is called two percent two yeah so two percent of his yeah. money he will we we can agree yeah. that he would never be able to get through uh probably another one percent of his fortune really like he can't unless he does something like this yeah unless, yeah, this unless how you're you spend so it. philanthropic that you you know, are giving these billions upon billions upon billions into these 
needed areas, then maybe you could start making a dent into your massive fortune. (laughs) That's the only way. (laughs) Yeah. Otherwise, you know, but this is why they're doing the things they're doing, like Bezos and and Elon Musk and like going to space and Richard Branson. Like they're, they don't have anything else to spend their money on. You just cannot spend that kind of money unless you are doing these ginormous, like, missions and you know the the technology development like I honestly I don't have words because I can't even wrap my brain around it because I'm just so so incredibly sadly far removed from that kind of a world um but yeah I you know like I said we're gonna be following this because I'm really curious I just think I had to bring it up because so many times how we've mentioned like if you know why do the rich and the celebrities of the world not like kick it up a notch quite frankly (laughs) I know because again like that is nothing and if they all did it stop we'd be but that the problem is then I mean it doesn't just because you end world hungry doesn't mean everybody becomes a rich person obviously you just you know save hundreds (laughs) of millions of people which is like a beautiful thing but it you know then it's still but does it mean that that separation between the haves and the haves not decreases a slight amount and is that what they're afraid of they don't they want (laughs) that huge gap but, you know, we've got to find someone to come on and talk about that because I think it's yeah, a really to. interesting. Um, Elon, we know you listen yeah, since Elon you're taking our idea. Took our idea. So you're welcome. Come um, on to the show and let us know. Fill us in on how we'll the elite lives. We'll let you lives. be the first man to come on Perspective. You're, I would again, be okay. Welcome. Yeah, I think we would be okay opening the doors for a man guest if it was Elon Musk. <laughs> so invitation is put out there, Elon. Balls in your court. Um, you know, you're probably listening, like, yeah. you know, right when, right when the episodes come out, I'm sure you have it like saved in your phone. So cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, we, of course, have, <laughs> moving on. Yeah. Moving on to a completely different area. Uh, we of course have a fantastic <laughs> show for you guys today. We, um, got into a bit of an area that we've wanted to chat about for a little bit, but admittedly, you know, it's a very delicate space and, um, being uh, white women, and I mean, I guess you would say we are women of privilege. Um, you know, it's a hard area to navigate because you don't. We would never want to come across insensitive, insulting, ignorant. So we were really hoping to find the right person to kind of fill us in and talk to us about um, just some racial differences, especially as it pertains to like the workforce. Yeah, yeah, that was an interesting way that she, our guest. Um, T- views it and and applies her knowledge and her information is through the workforce and so it is pretty interesting take that she has and uh we actually met shazia our guest shazia narali on uh, the podcast panel that you guys would have heard a few weeks back now um and that was put on by the yeg pod fest out of edmonton alberta and uh, shazia is also a an albertan is that what they're called yep and a fellow <laughs> podcaster as well. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, we're we're talking with Shazia Narali, as Jess said, and she um her podcast is called The Color Gap and she mm-hmm. will share a little bit about that. But it's an excellent space for resource on um navigating the workforce as uh you know, person of color, a woman of color. Um, so she's an HR professional. She's based out of Calgary. So she's a good old Canadian girl as well. Um, and yeah, she, you know, she just 
found this to be kind of her calling. Um, she's had some experiences, which she'll get into, and um, realized like there's a space to kind of talk about these topics, and they can be uncomfortable, and they can be hard to hear, um, but they're so, so important, and we just feel really lucky that she was willing to talk to us about it. Yeah, for sure. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Shazia. Welcome, Shazia. Thanks for having me, ladies. I'm excited to, to dig in the conversation with you. Yes, yes. And you're joining us all the way from Calgary, Alberta. So that's yeah. very exciting. Thank you. <laughs> and course. why don't we just jump in and just why don't you give us a little background about who you are, what you're doing, what you do with your spare time, all that good stuff. For sure. So I am uh, born and raised Calgarian. I escaped for <laughs> about four years to live in Vancouver and uh, moved Ooh. back to Alberta about seven years ago to um, sort of further my HR career. I initially moved to Vancouver to start grad school because I had a very strong desire to kind of marry a business undergrad with an education master's and go into workplace learning and development and sort of be that person that does like corporate training. And um, my life took a bit of a detour, ended up falling into recruitment kind of by accidental happenstance. And um, I always say, like, I'm such an introverted person that it was such a nightmare for the first, like, probably Aww. six months to just get used to it and get comfortable, um, all of those things. And then I spent, like, a number of years um, in the recruitment space, uh, in senior leadership roles, kind of working my way through. Uh, I worked for a local bank here called ATB Financial for about six years and was an incredible platform to kind of experiment with different types of approaches to almost disrupting traditional HR practices and sort of trying to sort of bring more of the humanity into those experiences because I always felt like a lot of the the processes and the employee experience that's developed is often done from an efficiency lens and a risk lens. And so it was an opportunity to start Mm. trying to bring more humanity into some of those pieces. And so I also spent a long time trying to reinvent myself being someone that just became really pegged as the recruitment lady, the one that like loved everything to do with recruitment. I could never really seem to get myself out of that realm. And so in May of 2020, I made the, you know, probably ridiculous decision at the time to actually leave my, the company that I was with to go and pursue um, a bit of a career pivot and take a big step back. So I was a director Um, of HR at the bank. And then I moved into an HR business partner role with the company that I'm with now. And um, it was such a trip mentally because I was learning a completely different type of work and a role and doing so virtually. I'm in a really heavily unionized environment right now, a lot more conservative, but I was really craving the learning and to be in an environment where I could just, you know, immerse myself in something really, really different. Um, And so I did that for about 16 months and then just recently got promoted into a role uh, leading diversity, inclusion and culture work for the organization, which is really where my passions lie. And on the side, I have the Color Gap podcast, which originally started off as a podcast with my dear friend um, and former colleague, Susie Coe. And we started talking about our lived experiences as being racialized women Uh, navigating through corporate environments, which are not always designed for us to thrive. And it was really a moment where I first got into my first leadership role, where I looked around and realized I didn't see anyone that looked like me and I didn't actually really have very many role models throughout my career. So I started talking about it with her and we decided to have this 
know, crazy harebrained idea to just start a podcast and do something to put our thoughts out into the universe. And That's then the a disruptor in you, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always say my, my therapist always calls me the gentle disruptor. And I, I steal that for any conversation that I have because I think it describes uh, me to a T. And about six to seven months ago, I think it was, Susie decided to take a step back off the podcast, refocus on family. And I've taken uh, the direction a little bit different. And I'm now focusing on what I call unconventional career strategy and advice for women of color and by women of color. And so it's a real safe space for um, me to kind of share my own journey, my own experiences, lessons learned, and also invite other racialized women to come onto the platform to talk about their perspectives on everything from personal branding to mental health and self-care. Um, I personally have gone through a journey of, you know, infusing things like spirituality, um, experiences in my own personal life of losing my dad uh, into the podcast, talking about purpose and different things, lessons that I've learned. And so that's the platform and that's the passion project that kind of keeps me fueled. And I mean, I live in Alberta and we're in lockdown kind of, but we're in our fourth wave and it's crazy with COVID. So my social life is dwindled and I, I spend a lot of time with my, with my puppy, Ollie. And he's my, uh, he's not really a puppy. He's like nine, but I rescued him. (laughs) They'll always be puppies. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just about five years ago, and he just brings me so much joy and reminds me to kind of stay focused on the simple pleasures. And so outside of work and um, sort of supporting my mom through the big transition that's happened in our lives in the last five months, uh, he takes up a lot of my time as well as a lot of time and energy spent in doing like a lot of nerdy things around personal development and reading and things like that. Um, Just a lot of reading. So I'm always so curious about... Uh, expanding my my scope of knowledge and my perspective. I also watch a lot of YouTube because I think that it's such an interesting access opportunity to different people's lived experiences and perspectives. I have this obsession with uh, YouTubers that live in New York because I always have this love affair in my mind (laughs) with New York. And so I get to live vicariously through them in a very introvert safe way. So yeah, we have that. We have that with California. We have (laughs) slight obsession and love affair with just California as a whole yeah we don't want to watch on YouTube we want to just yeah we just want to be there yeah we just want to become Californians and then people watch and listen to us yeah (laughs) see us from there no that's there's so much to unpack in what you said and I love how you you know you're living your career and and, and you're living that out with through your passion project as well. Like you have them kind of like incorporated uh, together and, and you're bettering the, each of them with each of the other ones. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's it's really cool that you kind of have that going on. And I guess kind of where we want to start is to know why you got you found the need to kind of create a, a podcast with that type of uh, direction and those types of stories. Yeah, we were, we've been wanting to have this conversation with someone for a long time, but it's such a delicate subject. And Mm -hmm. as women that are not of color, you know, it's a hard area to navigate. And we wanted to be really sure that when we do it, we don't come across like, you know, stupid, uneducated, uneducated or like not sensitive, insulting or anything like that, because we just, you know, we, we're not walking in those shoes. And, um, like so many other, like 
white people, white women, you know, we, we really do believe it's important to like hear from women of color and to help us like better understand and better and, and to help you as well. Um, and like what we can do. And yeah, so it's like, it's a, it's a, as I said, delicate area. And we're so glad that you're like willing to talk to us about it and help us learn. And same with our listeners Mm -hmm. and for our listeners that maybe haven't heard the other podcasts like we and other episodes we met because we were all on a panel for the YAG uh, pod fest so it was felt like it was meant to be that Mm -hmm. we got paired with you and um, that opened the door to us like asking if you'd be on our podcast and yeah we had a Canada-wide collab yeah uh, (laughs) which is so cool and and just because this pun just came to me I had to uh, echo off Lauren um Oh, no, I'm not going to deliver it good. Fuck. <laughs> but basically it was um, we see the gap, uh, especially with a lot of our shows, too, when it comes to like racial, um, you know, conversations. So mm-hmm. I, I that was a, a pun off your name. <laughs> the color gap podcast, not, just for yeah, our listeners. Because not delivered well. <laughs> for, the, for our regular listeners and Shazia, you may not be aware of this, but almost every episode just tries to like. <laughs> use a saying or have some like anecdotal like anecdotal saying now I can't even talk and (laughs) uh or recite a meme and not one time has she done it properly like a mental disorder it's just a running joke at this point (laughs) I can never relay things properly it's very strange and anyways anyways (laughs) please continue no I mean it's it's such a necessary timely conversation I think that there's just been such a, a a necessary like we've kind of all been waiting for this for a really long time those of us that identify um, as racialized and it's just I'm grateful for the opportunity to lean into these dialogues and recognize as well that I always preface anything by saying that if it's not uncomfortable we're probably just not doing it right and if you're not making mistakes you're probably just not leaning in further enough and far enough and I'm myself someone who has operated in my whole life with a lot of ignorance and a lot of privilege and didn't even recognize it until um, I started to unpack some of these things over the last number of years. And uh, so I've I've started to unpack a lot of these things just in the last uh, few years. And especially once I got into leadership, that was kind of the first time when it was a bit of an aha moment for me to recognize that I've walked around with a little bit of a fog for a long time. Uh, not necessarily understanding the impacts of white supremacy and white influence in my life and not really challenging those things until I got to a place in my life and in my career where it was kind of in my face to some extent, where I was in an HR team and a leadership team where the company was over 6,000 people and our HR leadership team just didn't represent our actual population of our team members. And in the HR capacity, we were building and designing and solutioning for these employee experiences, yet we had no real representation in that regard. And so that's where it all started. And it was really about creating a safe space to start having a dialogue because it was often a lot of advocating and asking to be seen and to be recognized because what we were finding a lot of the times was when conversations were happening uh, happening on diversity and equity and inclusion, A lot of organizations and a lot of people would not stop, would just stop at the gender equation and they wouldn't go like deeper than that. 
And there's an intersectional lens that I think has often been forgotten in the dialogue when it comes to equity and why it's so important to think about diversity and inclusion. It's really about recognizing people's lived experiences and knowing that we all operate from some sense of privilege and opportunity. And it's like, what do you do with that to actually support and provide opportunities and access to those that don't necessarily have the same? And so, I mean, I grew up as a child of Pakistani immigrants and um, first generation Canadians. So I carry a real depth of privilege just in that alone, being able to walk around in the world almost from a place of assimilation um, to white supremacy and white culture, right? Like my, I do get asked regularly where I'm from and it's like, no, where are you really from? Those kinds of conversations happen a lot, but I don't have an accent. I haven't had to learn a second language in order to navigate and be successful in these types of corporate environments. Um, I've had access to Canadian education, all of these things that hiring managers and leaders within organizations often um, use to weaponize uh, immigrants and those that don't necessarily have the same access and privilege that I do. And so part of the platform was to be able to use my lived experience and the courage that I've been able to build because of the privilege that I've had to be able to open up the opportunity for those that don't have the same access or the same ability to advocate for themselves in the same way. Wow. I mean, that's like, I love how you are saying that you like had that privilege. Um, just when you're talking about being on leadership teams and wanting to really open the doors to those conversations about diversity and inclusion, um, did you find that that was challenging at first where you met with kind of, oh, we don't want to go there or obstacles or were people pretty open to it? I think it's been a little bit of both, but more on the sort of put it away. We're not going to deal with it because we're not ready to actually acknowledge these things as an organization. And it's just fascinating. I think it's like from a lived experience perspective, people will only hear what they want to hear. They might have some empathy. They might extend that to you. But once you start putting the data and the numbers in front of folks and actually hearing or seeing it in front of their eyes that the higher up you get into an organization, the, the more white it becomes and the less diversified it actually becomes. That's when you start to actually open people's perspectives and their eyes. And so one of the most interesting pieces of the story of how I kind of got more deeply embedded into this work was um, at the bank that I was working on, very progressive organization, like super values based, really like talk the talk about, you know, being that really forward thinking type of organization. And I personally loved being there for many, many years. It was only in the last about 18 months that I just felt a disconnect and decided to make the change. But in all regards, there was a lot of intentionality in the company. And I remember there was a very specific moment where they launched um, the women's network, which was called Elevate. And it was designed to elevate all women across the organization. And I remember logging into um, the virtual event that they had held because we had um, employees all across Alberta. So they did a lot of virtual things, but this was pre-COVID. And it was all white women on the leadership panel. And the executive sponsor was an executive that I had worked with quite closely, had a really good relationship with. And so I went to him and I said, this isn't okay. It's not representative of what this organization is supposed to stand for. It's not representative of the women in this company and it's not intersectional. And to be honest, I got a little bit ignored and it wasn't him that ended up doing anything to action it. It was a really well-intentioned, well-meaning ally 
who was a leader on that um, on that committee who actually opened up the opportunity to invite uh, a racialized perspective. And so I ended up being was it on a woman? Team. Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask, was it a woman and was she uh, a woman of color or was she white? No, she was a white woman. So there was only white women that were on that leadership team. But she was someone that always played a really strong allyship role. And she herself now works in inclusion and diversity work. And she's always been someone that's been an advocate and uses her platform and her privilege in the best ways to try to make change. So she opened up the opportunity for a racialized person or a woman to put up their hand to be included. Um, I ended up putting up my hand because I thought if I'm going to, you know, speak up, I'm going to actually have to step mm-hmm. up as well. You have to yeah. walk the walk if you're going to talk yeah. the talk. <laughs> yeah. So I got the opportunity to, to sit on the leadership team for a couple of years while I was there as well. And it was just eye opening because I think there was just such a, an ignorance to the fact that there was other lived experiences outside of just elevating the gender perspective. And so it's been tough. It's been a lot of kind of being ignored and sort of, you know, well intentions, but not actually following through in the way that has any meaning or any meat behind it. And so it's been quite a lot of advocating and providing a perspective that sometimes is uncomfortable for people to hear. And that's part of the process of leaning into the work, but it's also part of my privilege that I, I don't know, like there's something about me sometimes that I feel a little bit fearless in the face of some of those things because I I just think that I have a, a duty and a responsibility to say the things that other people just don't have the capacity and the ability to do. So it's been well, a and the a passion. Battle. I can yeah I can hear the passion coming through your voice and obviously mm-hmm. everything that you're saying. So obviously when you feel like those strong feelings, I'm sure that's what kind of gives you that confidence sometimes when you are feeling maybe a little introverted or or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Um I wanted to ask you as well, because you mentioned um, that there was, I, I forget what you said, but you mentioned that you were bridging the, they were trying to bridge the gender gap, or that was maybe an attempt or, um, right, I believe that's what you said. Yeah. And so now how does it feel as a woman of color, but as a woman as well? So like, how, you met, or do you feel two gaps or is the gap like bigger? Like, how how is that really? Yeah, I wanted to ask, is there like levels there? Because again, going back to what you were saying is gender is one thing, but then gender and race is obviously in a a different bucket. And, you know, when you mentioned that the leadership team was exclusively white women, I also want to unpack like, and we can get to this after, but is that on purpose? Like, how does that happen? And why does that happen? Like, why do we still get there? And this is still clearly a common issue like in 2021, almost the end of 2021. And we're start, I feel like we're just starting to scratch the surface. So mm-hmm. obviously there's a couple questions in there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's, I don't think a lot of times it's done maliciously or with intention. I just think that it's almost easier to access those conversations when it comes to just the gender gap, because Mm-hmm. It, you just have more power in those numbers, right? And people that are in more positions of influence that you can relate to them in some way or you can bring it back to if this was your daughter, if this was your wife going through this, like then it's like, okay, people, men in those positions of influence suddenly have an ability to connect the dots a little bit better. But, when but do you comes, think, is it, what if it's your white daughter? What if it's your white? Mm-hmm. Well, because they are white. So yeah. they are still finding it more relatable because yeah. they're yeah. both at least white yeah that's, that's exactly it yeah yes. and yeah. 
And that's, that's, I think where the issue is, right? Mm -hmm. You can have those conversations, but I think in that level of uh, leadership, that is where, well, first of all, these individuals typically are white and then their brain goes there. So Mm -hmm. it's not like just a daughter. It's, well, what if she was your Indian daughter? Or like, does that matter? Like, is that now that gets a whole other train of thought going, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I I use that example as it's an accessible place for people to go. And Mm -hmm. it sort of, it it allows that empathy to be invoked for them to say, okay, I'm going to try to do something about this. But the problem is why it's so perpetual and why it doesn't end is because people's circles of influence are typically what I've seen over the years is that everybody in their lives looks, acts, thinks very similarly to them, right? They're, they're values-based. Most people are values-based and they're going to build friendships and community based on the things that they want to see for themselves and their families. But what I find is that even with everything that happened with BLM, Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, it was so difficult to watch people being so excited about actually throwing in some support, but not changing anything about their actual lives to access the lived experience of people that they were not naturally in their circles of influence. And so what you find is a lot of racialized people, a lot of black and indigenous people, we don't have those networks that we can easily access. And then we have massive gaps when it comes to being able to um, access the rich white executive that happens to, you know, their kids play hockey together. So that's who's going to get the job because there's an opportunity because of a relationship and a connection and a circle of influence that people are not right. challenging themselves beyond what re- what's required at work. And I always say the personal is professional. You can't separate the two. And if you're not challenging yourself to expand your circles of influence and who is in that in a really meaningful way, it's probably not going to show up in the workplace either. You're not going to suddenly become super aware of that intersectionality lens. It just doesn't happen because people don't invest the energy outside of what's comfortable for them and they don't want to blend the two. What would you suggest like the, you know, just off that, um, you know, one, one element of all of this, what would you suggest people do? Like one thing anyone can do. So it's so, it's very elementary and it doesn't, it sort of scratches the surface and I'm not saying it, it by any means replaces building authentic, organic relationships with people that don't look like you or have the same, you know, life experiences. But I am such a huge fan of platforms like social media to at the very least access lived experiences of people that don't think like you or don't have the same experiences as you do. And so it's just diversifying your feeds, diversifying even books that you read or the things that you're accessing in terms of the knowledge, because those stories would actually connect you to the fact that everyone is probably very similar for the most part, in terms of the things that they want for themselves and their families. And there's a lot of like-minded values-based connection. But the experiences of a Black woman or an Indigenous woman walking around in the world, I'm never going to walk in those shoes. So I need to be able to understand what that means. And it's so accessible. People put out content all the time about their lives and what they navigate through. And it's just the easiest place to start is like, diversifying where you're getting your sources of information, where you're getting your influence from, your entertainment, anything like that, just to be able to expand your worldview a little bit. It's a starting point, but it also opens up potentially natural opportunities for you to connect with people. 
in a more organic way, right? Because then you've got something that you might want to reach out to them about because something that they said or did just really connected and resonated with you. And then you're able to start to expand your worldview in a way that feels it's a little safe, but it's a start, right? So. I wanted to ask about your thoughts on things like the BLM movements and and, um, other movements that are are similar and that have kind of come up over the past year. Well, and here in Canada, like all the, you know, residential school horrific things that have come out. Yeah, I mean, to separate those, um, my, my point on the BLM is like, do you feel that it's sort of a bandwagony thing too at times where... It's a big moment. It's a huge event. The whole world is watching, or at least North America was is watching. And is it something that people, that, you know, what is the majority or what is the amount of people that are actually, when they are saying something, when they're rah-rah on their social media, are they actually like taking action or is it just to take part because mm-hmm. that's what the masses are doing? Because I, I find that that's always a challenge too. You know, and I and I've thought about it for myself. Like, I don't want to be somebody who's just jumping on this because that's like what's happening right now. And it's like high intensity and everybody's involved. And it's like if I don't post a black square, will I be labeled, you know, a racist or someone who doesn't care or not empathetic to the situation and and to people of color? Um, But if I do post a black square, Am I just doing it for the sake of doing it so I look like everybody else in that space? Like, I, I find that there's, like, a fine line there, too. Yeah. And and truthfully, I don't really know how to, like, you know, navigate that either because, I, I again, it's sometimes, you know, you get nervous to ask these questions um, to individuals of color because, again, I don't want to be insulting and I don't want to look ignorant and... I, I genuinely do want to know and help and understand, but like, it just feels like, you know, there's so many different, um, feelings on it. And I, it's hard to know like, okay, which, which is the direction I should be going in. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah. because we are not in the know, it feels ignorant just to be not in the know. Yeah. So then it kind of feels like, well, I can't even ask now. Cause that's even more rude or, yeah. you know, even more sensitive and to, to connect them again, like, like the, the BLM and the indigenous, it is the bla- black square. It is the orange shirt. You know, it's, are these still just things that we're doing? Like Lauren said to have this like hurrah that day or that time. Mm-hmm. And then we stop thinking about it. And then our feed fills up with all the regular, all the rest of it, yeah. the Kardashians again. And <laughs> yeah. Fashion, yeah. So, you know, like lifestyle. it's the same type of situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I speak to this as an ally to the black community and someone who's on my own journey to understand what I can do to amplify the voices in those stories, because I agree in 2020 when George Floyd was murdered, it was this uprising that happened. And it was a movement that was incredibly necessary to happen because the Black community for so long has been trying to talk about these things, but just not heard. And I think there's a there's a really significant difference between someone who does post that Black square and then does nothing further and the person that wants to intentionally think about what are they going to do in their day-to-day life to start challenging things within own biases, within how they show up with other people, because that's when it gets really uncomfortable. That's when it's icky. 
It's when you have to tell the racist person in your family that, that what they're saying is wrong. It's when you might have to sever relationships because someone is crossing a boundary around their perceptions or their thoughts or perspectives around the whole movement in and of itself. It's really about making things uncomfortable in your own life. And I think a lot of people just are not necessarily ready to do that. And it's a hard truth that I think a lot of folks need to hear. And it, it goes back to the idea that like, if you're not a person that would ever be willing to open up your perspective and build friendships and date people from another race or to access other things, then you're actually not being an ally in any capacity and you're just per further perpetuating the problem. And so it starts with intentional action, right? It's about understanding as white women, what is that white fragility? How does your privilege play into the things that you've been able to access? What can you do with that to actually lift up and empower those voices in a different kind of a way? So it just requires people to get really uncomfortable and make changes in their lives, which you think about any movement, it doesn't necessarily happen to that point until it becomes detrimental to that individual and until it becomes something that becomes really yeah. personal for them. So maybe it becomes personal because someone in their family happens to marry into a black family and then you have children that are being raised in that environment and then it's like, oh, now I recognize that I need to do these things. But I don't think it should ever get to that point. I think seeing what we saw last year should be that inflection point to start making meaningful changes and actually start standing really strongly in grounding yourself in those values and what you will be okay with and what you won't be. And then thinking about what you can do in terms of actionable impact. And sometimes it is just creating space for people, just letting them talk and share their experiences. And part of it as well is recognizing your biases and how are you contributing as an individual, right? And I was in a session on yeah. Sunday um, about using an anti-racism lens on your social media. It was with um, this really amazing activist here in Calgary, her name is Taylor McNally, and she actually had everybody in the group go around and admit what our biases are and have been towards Black and Indigenous people. And it was like... Did you share one? Yeah, because I I grew up in a household, immigrant Pakistani parents, where anything, anybody that was outside of that community, my parents were really afraid of. And I actually was quite rebellious in that, and that I had a very diverse social group, um, relationships, everything. Like I never really bought into it. But when it came to indigenous people, I had two images. It was the folks that were in the streets that had substance abuse issues and concerns, yeah. or it was that cultural appropriation or celebration of, you know, the powwow and the teepee and the things that felt a little bit more commercialized in that perspective. Yeah. And then with the black community, which is very true. I think we can agree with that as well. A hundred percent. I had that conversation with my mom because, and, and yeah, I, I mean, I had to like own that for myself too. And, and it was in part, like it started a conversation about like, we're kind of conditioned a little bit to like think that way. Um, because I didn't know about the residential schools to like how serious that was. We were not taught that in school. It was, of course, not. it was kind of like brushed over, like this sort of happened. Very but conveniently. Not, yeah. But not like you didn't know what was happening to these poor children. Right. Yeah. And well, the authors of our history books couldn't really admit to all these yeah, hideous wrongdoings. Well, that's just it in a public school system run by, you know, whatever government, 
at the time created it, just wanted to make sure that they weren't putting themselves in hot water. So it was like, well, it's kind of happened, but you know, it wasn't that bad and we're sorry and let's move on until mm-hmm. graves are discovered mm-hmm. um, all these years later. So it, it did kind of put some things into perspective because my, like I said, my mom and I were talking and I was like, you know, we, you, you kind of hear as you get like through, your life and whatever, and that um, indigenous individuals have alcohol issues, a lot of them, um, drug, like substance abuse issues, like you said. And, you know, it's kind of like, oh, well, like, you know, why do they all go there? And it's like, well, the, the white man brought alcohol and they traded tobacco. It's this sort of really ridiculous story that is the narrative around this. And it's like, if there is individuals that I have seen passed on the street, things like that over time. And maybe they are, um, they do have substance abuse issues probably because they had these horrific experiences as children of residential schools themselves, as, um, resources as people, as people that maybe lost their child to a residential school, brother, sister, like, you know, they, they had some kind of experience with it. And when you stop and kind of think about it, it's just absolutely heartbreaking because I'm like, of course, you know, like when you are in so much pain as humans, we kind of do whatever to cope with that. And that may have been, you know, the easiest way to cope. And, and this is, and like I said, please like, correct me if I'm wrong, but this was sort of like this realization that we came to and it was just like, oh my God, like we've never connected those dots. Mm-hmm. It's insane, though, that you had to come to that now. Like, we should know and be privy, and this should be common knowledge um, because we should be well on the way to, like, you know, rectifying these hideous issues that still exist, but we're still just, like, kind of coming to that realization. Yeah, and I right? think part of it is I, I sometimes question, too. It's like if this was something that was taught in our history books, you might develop a lens of empathy around things especially as a hundred percent but you may not do anything different in your life in your day-to-day you might challenge your biases a little bit more but I think that because it's so systemic right there's so much around at an Mm -hmm. individual level there's a lot you can do to you know be an ally and to listen to the stories and to really start to look at the experiences from a very very different perspective but a lot of it is systemic and a lot of it is not possible for us to change just because we have the knowledge now right it's more about the systems of power what is keeping these situations in place what is keeping people down and leaning on these you know these things to be able to navigate through life and you think about mental health resources and the ideas of defunding the police all of this stuff comes back down to putting the resources back on the root causes of the problems and shifting those power structures which is bigger than a lot of us have the ability to influence, but at an individual level, there's a lot we can do to just challenge. And I think a big part of it is speaking truth to the existence of these things. I think that's one thing that gets really washed down when you're in corporate environments. It's like, you don't want to say things like cultural genocide and, you know, these kids were murdered. Like that is the reality of what happened. And there's all this intergenerational trauma that people can't just shake off. It's not about resilience. It's about actual trauma that they're navigating through. And our environments in those workplaces are just not designed to even acknowledge that. And that's a huge part of the problem. So it's like we're up against such a big barrier to get to a place where we actually can see real change. And it matters who you vote in. It matters 
you know, what you do to exercise that perspective and it matters how you, you know, advocate for where those tax dollars get used because if that's not being changed, we need to hold politicians accountable to make something happen in a different way. That'll be the day when we can actually do that because, and Lauren and I have had this conversation many times, especially, you know, surrounding the last election of how um, politicians are really the fucking worst. Um, But we just did our inclusion meetings and they're all, it's kind of like a crock of shit because, uh, you know, it's nice that they're there, I guess, if if that's what the steps that are needed to be taken. But literally in the in the quiz where we all had to put forth our opinions about inclusivity in the company um only the um you know the 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 c-suite executives felt that it was you know a really inclusive and and productive space every single person underneath was like no it's not like there are serious issues here um so uh, like is that not a, like a head shake why are we doing these meetings if that's what we're finding out and what's different what is not one thing has been implemented since months ago when we had this inclusivity meeting and and this is a giant company in canada mm-hmm. so and and in toronto which is which is a very diverse city of canada and not one thing has changed so it's like shit like that that's going on perpetuating these horrible cycles and and issues that's kind of what my, like, where my, I was going with that comment about, like, the bandwagoning thing with BLM, mm-hmm. because I feel like that came up, and then huge corporations ran to their HR team, like, what do we do? We got to get ahead of this. We got to make it look like we care. And I'm not knocking all corporations, because I do believe that lots do care, and, and a lot really did invest time and money and resources and tried to, you know, change um, so I'm not trying to paint everybody in every corporation with the same brush, but that's what I think sometimes it's like, well, okay, let's, we checked off the, uh, the meeting, something for inclusivity <laughs> and diversity box, like check. Okay. We're good now. We've covered that. Yeah. Now we can't be like, no, no one can say that we didn't You try. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if that is like a big issue, a bigger issue because yeah. you can't just put it on your like status meeting agenda item and be like, okay, well we did talk about inclusion and diversity moving on. Like it's not one, it's not a one time meeting yeah. or discussion. It obviously has to be something that goes on and on and on and on. But then what does have to go on and on? Cause that's my next question. Well, that's like my, my, my thought process. Like, okay, they did that meeting, found out there's an issue. I've yet to see any sort of like next steps, but what even could be a next step for a corporation? And, and is this kind of your realm, you know, mm-hmm. you dealing with the gender or sorry, well, the gender too, the gender and color gap within corporations and workplace. So like what would be the next steps? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's, I think it always comes back down to the, like fixing that foundation. It's like, you can't build on a cracked foundation. You can't just go and train your way out of people's biases or, the bad policy that perpetuates the problems. And frankly, like you're not necessarily always going to be able to make significant inroads because at the end of the day, there is an element of people not wanting to let go of the positions that they're in and the power and the influence. And that's where it be, that's where the rubber hits the road. But really when it comes down to trying to make meaningful change, it starts with, I believe doing it's so technical, but it's like, it's almost like auditing all of those employee experiences. So thinking about how are you attracting people to the organization? What is their experience like going through your recruitment process? How are they navigating through developing and being succeeded in the organization? Are we challenging the ways in which we set up some of these systems that are naturally designed 
kind of in a place of being comfortable. Like I think about succession planning process. I mean, thinking about who is going to succeed the CEO or who is going to, you know, be that next director at the company. If we're not having those challenging conversations at the table when we're discussing talent within the organization or actually expanding our circles of influence within those companies, then nothing changes. And it's just hiring the like-minded people who look, think, act exactly like you do. And it just perpetuates the problem over and over again. So it's so basic on the surface. It's really a lot more complicated than that, but it starts with looking at the system and understanding where are those barriers? Where did we make this policy in 2012 and it has nothing to do with you know, the world as it is today, like you think about everything that yeah. happened in 2020, like it's going to change how we look at the way we work, right? And it has to. And if you're not actually evolving those experiences, those policies, the expectations of leaders and holding them accountable, absolutely nothing will change. So it's very HR, but I think it starts in that that space. But as employees, like, is that something that people should be sort of saying, hey, like we had that, like in Jess's situation, hey, we had that, you know, meeting and that quiz, just wondering what the next steps are. Yeah. Like, when are we going to see some things that we talked about implemented? Like, what it, what is the plan? I'm genuinely curious. Like, mm-hmm. I care about this. It's important to me to work at a place that is truly inclusive and diverse and cares about, um, you know, world issues or people issues, um, human rights, things like that, you know, but, but it's also like, maybe people aren't doing that because should we be afraid for our jobs if we speak up? Like there's just, it seems like it's, again, I keep saying it just like such a challenging thing to navigate properly. Yeah. If you are in a position of influence or privilege in any capacity within your organization, speak up as much as you can, because holding people and especially leadership accountable to walking the walk is the most important thing, right? And truly, at the end of the day, if an organization doesn't align and they're they're saying all of these things, but you're not actually feeling that in reality, it's easier said than done. But there is an element of having that advocacy for yourself to walk away from a company that doesn't actually align with your values and who you are as a person. And you think about what's going on right now, there's this trend around the great resignation and all of these people that are just quitting jobs because COVID has put a lot of things into focus around what's actually really important and talent is in the driver's seat. So there's an opportunity to really reevaluate if you're in a company that is just performative or if they're doing things that actually are moving the needle in a meaningful way. And if they're communicating, if they're open to having a dialogue, if they've got someone in a position of influence that is leading this work that is wanting to have those difficult conversations and is not just doing things that are surface level. Um, and if they aren't, then you possibly have the ability to walk away and actually make sure that that's known when you leave the organization, utilizing whatever platforms that you have to speak to those experiences. I think it's just mm-hmm. so important for that truth to be brought to the surface so that organizations can be held accountable. And frankly, a lot of them are because investors where you're putting your money, people are asking for these things. They're asking for, show me, show me the metrics, show me the data. Otherwise I'm not going to invest in your company. And 
Some of us don't, obviously. Yeah, we don't all have that level of influence to, you know, be able to be investing all (laughs) that money into organizations. But you can make (laughs) choices based on, yeah, (laughs) even individually. Like, even if you're an investor and like on the side and doing things just to supplement income a little bit, you have choices, right, on where you do business, who you give your money to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is important, too, because obviously the money talks. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's kind of what when I think about some of the issues that we have in, in our country or currently, um, you know, even surrounding COVID. At, for me, it all comes down to um, the money ruling so many of these decisions um, and and ruling like corruption within our government and things like that like there's just so much um that comes out of that and then obviously that a lot of that money lies with uh white people and with the privilege uh, of that so that is silly um and stupid and i wish that we could you know change that up a little bit but here we are you know and even having this conversation i think is helpful for for you know educating and, and bridging some of those gaps too and i wanted to ask you you know honestly me and Lauren are, are two white girls. Is it annoying that we are asking you these questions? Like, is it annoying that you have to be the one to like answer questions like this and educate? And I just, I just have to add to that because that was part of like where I was going with my question earlier, um, about like, how do you kind of like, you know, ask or do something to make that change? Because during the BLM, um, like the really in the heat of it, as things were coming out and people were obviously speaking out, um, certainly uh, men and women, but a lot of women that I follow of color um, started posting things like don't ask how to make a change, like do the research yourself, like you have to learn on your own kind of thing. It's insulting to ask us how to teach you not to be racist, um, you know, just to kind of paraphrase. And on one hand, I'm like, I totally understand that. Like, you know, we, if we truly care, we should be kind of getting that information and learning and, and figuring it out. But at the same time, for me, it was like, but I, I don't know if I'm getting the right information. Like, I don't want to be, do something wrong. I, I, I'm asking for your help because I want you to be like, listen, this is what you need to do. And you haven't been doing it. So do it. Like, mm-hmm. so it was, it's a weird, like, dichotomy there. Well, this is also something we want to talk about. We have a podcast. So like, we want to talk about it on our podcast we want to spread this conversation so is it annoying <laughs> like and I'm sorry if it is but just wondering like what do you yeah I on mean that? I'll preface by saying that like nobody is in a monolith right so everybody's experiences with their approach to this work might look a little different depending on you know what they do for a living in the context of all of that and there's a benefit to some extent with someone like me because I also have a podcast and this is an opportunity to open up a new audience to that, right? And the thing that I always, I hear often, and one thing that I'm learning to do for myself as well is, like, if you're asking for someone's time and resources in a professional capacity, or even to learn from their their trauma or their lived experience, pay them. Like, that's the bottom line, right? Like, if there's an opportunity there to be able to, you know, like, the number of times I get asked to do free things for corporations and do talks and presentations, and it's like, my time isn't free and it's it's valuable, right? If I'm not seeing a benefit like I am in this context, I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm not going to say yes and I'm going to actually push back to requests that you pay for my time. And that's what a lot of these folks are asking for is like, especially because a lot of it is this emotional labor. It's dredging up a lot of things that 
Now, this is everybody's lived experience. And the way that I often explain it to um, white allies and people in my life is it's almost like you're a woman navigating through a park at night. Like we all know the experience of how hyper aware you are of your surroundings, of just being on, on guard, ready to attack if something happens. That's the experience that racialized people navigate through every single day. We're so hyper aware of our differences. It's like this constant anxiety we're holding on to the ways in which the world shows up for us is not it's not the same frankly and so how do you make that playing field a little bit more equitable and it's offering to pay people it's doing the research yourself too because google is a beautiful resource as well as some of the things i talked about earlier with even just accessing some of the free stuff that's out there with people's you know lived experiences what they share on social media some of that stuff really just opens up your eyes and I think it's such a great place to start too, is listening to people's stories. That just opens up a whole world of empathy that you may not necessarily have been able to access in other ways. So it's not annoying for me because this is something that I do for a living and it's something that I'm like so passionate about. And I'm in such a, a deep place of privilege. Like I work in a leadership role in a corporate environment in a pretty stable industry like all of those things are working in my favor i haven't had to necessarily fight as hard um, to access those opportunities in those spaces and i've been able to do it for the most part pretty authentically that's not the case for everybody so when you are doing so in a place of when you're in a position of privilege and power just be mindful of your audience and mindful of who you're requesting some of that that perspective from because if someone's making a living off of it then then payment should be on the table for something like that that's that's the perspective that I'm coming to advocate for myself about and I'm hearing a lot from other racialized people that do this work it's really just a matter of making the playing field more equitable Right. That's actually amazing advice. Like, honestly, I have to say, I would never have even thought about that. Like, I would think like, oh, yeah, like, you know, someone's asking for your experience and, and this is a way for you to help educate. I, I wouldn't even think about like the cost of your time and your trauma, right? And um, or your experiences. So I just think that is a really, really valuable piece of advice. And I hope if our listeners, any of them that are maybe in that position to have someone um, speak in whatever capacity that may be, hopefully they will think about that and Mm -hmm. absolutely level that playing field a little bit. It should be equal. Um, So I love, and I love your analogy about a woman walking alone at the park because that is very relatable. Like I can, I can get that. We instantly knew what you meant. Yeah. I could feel it. Mm very yeah like truly like I could feel it that those emotions that like intensity and that hyper awareness and so that's probably like you know the first time that's ever been positioned to me where I can be like you know I get that like that is a very real palpable like experience and because of that um that analogy that you drew I it's what came to my mind was maybe the only way to really bridge the gap is through women because we have this understanding in that sense, like the analogy you made, we have the understanding of being hyper aware. We understand exactly what that means. Um, men, I don't think do. Um, so it's, I think it's really hard to like get through to men when they just don't, they're so like unaware of things like that. So they just get to live their lives very differently in all aspects. They could walk down the street and, and genuinely have no fear. 
Mm-hmm. And and to me, obviously, that's insane. So obviously, somebody, a, a person of color who is navigating the world like that all the time, not just in the dark park, feels that even more. So like, maybe the way is through women. And, and I mean, I am always obviously a feminist. <laughs> Maybe a little sexist. I prefer women, but I think that <laughs> I, no, I'm just kidding. That's terrible. But um, I think that maybe that is the way we will be. We are more understanding, and and I don't know how or like or what to do, but I just feel like that's probably like the the key. Maybe yeah, I think it's somehow. a starting point, and it goes back to breaking down those systems. And unfortunately, white men are at the the top of those systems, benefiting the most from them, and so. You know, we know what the power of women is, right? We've seen so many movements throughout the world over many, many years. You know, there's always this idea, too, that if you um, if you educate a woman, her whole family has impacted in the best way from that, right? And so there's so yeah. much power in it, but I we are, yeah, we're also marginalized, right? And so there's a, there's a responsibility on the pa- platforms and the um, voices of white men. And it's like, how do we invoke that? Possibly through you know, the women in their lives and that's part of it, but there's, it's breaking down those systems, which is just super then, hard. How, where does it come into the education about things? Because here's another example. And again, you know, I think that I, and, and we speak a lot about the gender inequality or more so than any, um, than the race inequalities. But so speaking of it from a gender inequality, we talk about how, uh, we shouldn't teach women to protect themselves um, against like a rapist. We should teach like rapists not to rape. So like, where does that mentality of education come into this? Like, mm-hmm. where do we start with that? Like, is this done in school? Well, I think it's like it. It probably should start there. It's just I think our education system is sometimes a little bit behind the times, but I I do think there's a bit of a... It's (laughs) antiquated. Yeah. Beyond. (laughs) I think there's an opportunity to challenge certain perspectives and places where, like I did an episode that I released this morning on um, why you should be kinder to yourself and the self-compassion element of, of navigating through the things that you go through in your career and your life. And it's a lesson that I really struggle with. And a big part of it is because I grew up in a very collectivist type culture, right? And so I'm not the person that thinks about myself. I think about everybody else before I put myself first or in any position. And I think a lot of women experience that even just being moms and having families and all of those things, right? But when you grow up in those environments where you're always taught to think about everybody before yourself, it is very, very difficult to set boundaries. And it's difficult to understand how to actually access places of self-care and wellness and things like that. And you think about a lot of those environments, um, the industries, things like the wellness industry, that self-care industry, a lot of it is built on the perspectives of white women who have very, very different privilege in terms of accessing those opportunities to really, you know, get that Zen or get that self-care in their lives. And it's like, how do we, from a perspective of like, educating ourselves on all of the different ways in which that intersectional approach just doesn't show up and actually start to challenge some of that and some of the things that you you read about and you learn about. If you're doing something like yoga, start to challenge yourself to understand what are the the origins and the history and where does it actually come from. Um, Halloween is an example of if there's someone that wants to appropriate a culture by wearing a certain costume, that's a chance to challenge them to think about like, like what makes it okay, right? And it's like, 
How do you start to educate yourself in all of those places that are kind of unexpected? There's so many layers to that process, but I think it's a matter of looking at those traditional spaces that are a little bit more accessible and easier for certain people. And how do you make them more equitable? How do you actually understand those layers that come from the experiences of being othered in those environments? I know that's maybe not a black and white answer. It's very, very nuanced. And that's no, nothing about this is. <laughs> yeah. But I like how you said to break it down, like even something like Halloween coming up, that's a small little start to a conversation we can have with the kids and say, like, do you, do you know where your costume came from or things like that? You know what I mean? And, and go from there. So that's that's something manageable that we can remember to do and take with us. <laughs> well, just. Also from like, you know, a marketing perspective, because um, you know, that's my background, is it's interesting when you say like yoga, for example, I think a lot, so many things that are, you know, what were a cultural experience um, in different cultures all over the world get exploited, right? Mm-hmm. Like yoga is yoga, but it's also a trend, Yeah, right? It's, it's, it's no longer exploited. companies have founded like their whole brand and business on yoga lululemon for mm-hmm. example and i'm not knocking them i'm i i think that the founder actually was like true to like where yoga came from and like respects that um respects everything about it but realistically like the consumer isn't going that deep into like what the what these clothes are for and what the purpose is it's just Well, even people are going to yoga. It's cute. It's sexy. Exactly. And a lot of people joined yoga because it was a trend, knowing nothing about it, not even maybe fully understanding what the benefits of it could be. It's just like, well, I want to wear my Lululemons and I want to be part of this. And so I think like that's something important to take away and just think about like even just yeah, what are you wearing? And like, why are you wearing it? And I try and be mindful of those things um, more and more now. And yeah, like going back to when you said that if a woman is educated, her family is likely educated. And it's it's a conversation that comes up in our household quite a bit. But it's me leading it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm married to a white man. And I'm, I'm very vocal about it in front of my two white sons. Mm-hmm. Also, but you have to, to say, be also vocal about women's in uh women's equality and inequality things like that too that's exactly what I'm talking about like a lot of those conversations do take place at our house and there have has been times when my husband will be like well that's not true women are equal and I'm like whoa don't say that that's not (laughs) that's not true and I will say like you are you have so much power you don't even know because it's it's you just have it Mm -hmm. like you didn't need to be told you have it you just have it and I said it's you specifically you white men need to advocate for me as a woman and you need our sons to hear you advocate and you need to speak up and so do your friends and or our friends like and then to go even further like and this is sort of like a question as well is like is that what we're lacking like we need white men to get on board we yeah. need white men like to Shazia recognize. Is be like, Fuck yes. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt she'll use that word, but <laughs> you can if you want, Shazia. <laughs> Jess will use it for you. But I mean, I, I I can't help but feel like that's just where it needs to. That's where the biggest change needs to happen. Mm-hmm. White men with need so to many like things. just yeah, yeah, they just need to like own it and 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 respect it and and be like yes. This is important to us. This needs to change. We recognize why this needs to change. And 
use their voice because while there is strength in numbers, women are super powerful as well. Um, but we're still not, we as women are not sitting at the top Mm -hmm. in most like industries and, and like probably all of them, I'd say. Yeah. 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 I mean, a hundred percent. That's where it starts. Right. And it, it's just at the very minimum, it's understanding the ways in which people can walk through the world. If you're a white man, it's just like doors open for you, opportunities, experiences. And I think about too, like a lot of times people don't understand when you think about colonialism and impacts that it has on um, different countries around the world. There's so much idolization of the white man because that's what we've all been taught. And I, I teach um, an inclusive leadership class at work. And one of the things I talk about is my own um, biases that are not even unconscious. Like I know what they are. And one of them growing up has been that white men are like leaders. That has always been my bias that they are more powerful as leaders because that's all I've really ever seen. And a lot of it requires, it's not even necessarily always stepping down from the positions of power, but just accessing other people's experiences and using that privilege to lift somebody else up. And so I think about like things like in the corporate context, like reverse mentorship, actually going out and seeking the perspectives of a black woman to mentor you as a, as a white man to understand how do you need to show up in the best way to support someone like her? Like those are the, those small micro moments that can make such a massive difference in not only invoking that empathy, but actually demonstrating a real considerable desire to make some changes and to sponsor someone that doesn't look like you to challenge whether you're just staying in that zone of comfort you're staying in the suburbs and everybody that like you're around is exact replicas of you that's when things need to change and unfortunately it's just uncomfortable for a lot of people and it requires them to recognize their privilege and the platforms in which they've been able to access things a lot easier but it really like i said before it requires them to make changes that i don't think a lot of them are actually ready to do because they're benefiting off the systems in the most significant way right like but it is about just looking at things from a very critical lens and challenging of course like yeah. what we've always thought we knew about some of these things and it's like unlearning is a lot of it right like thinking about why is it that we're so naturally inclined to believe that the white man is the person that's in charge, right? And what is it about the ways in which we've been raised and what we've been around that that makes us believe those things and start challenging some of that, changing the narratives, um, surrounding yourself by people and lived experiences that are completely unlike yourself. It's so important. And that 100% is where it starts. Yeah, it's got to be a lot of deprogramming too, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, do you think that's happening though? Like, I, I love the idea of that reverse mentorship. Is is that taking place? Do you, are you seeing that, hearing about that? Because, you know, props to those that are taking those steps, that putting themselves in that uncomfortable position, even though it shouldn't be uncomfortable. Like, no, it, it shouldn't it be. I understand why it is, and I understand what you're saying, but it's like... But maybe it's not. If they're putting themselves in that position, maybe they're genuinely curious and wanting to, like, yeah. you know, have that knowledge. I, you know, we have to believe that there are white men allies to women and women of color, like, and people of color. Um, so do, like I said, do you see and hear that happening? Like, is that something that's sort of picking up some steam? I think at a macro level, I see it a lot. Like I, I read a lot of Harvard business review for work. Like that's something that I access quite regularly. And I, I see a lot of that happening at like big companies like Virgin and, you know, companies that 
maybe in some like extent, Richard Branson is doing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Oh, good. <laughs> so it's things like that, but like at the micro level, when you're looking at individual organizations, even like small businesses and different, like a lot of times that just doesn't it it doesn't it, it infiltrate that sort of day to day experience, and sometimes it's ignorance is bliss, right? And so there isn't necessarily totally. anyone holding people's feet to the fire. And I think it really comes down to this accountability factor. Like unless you're measuring it, unless you're holding people accountable, things don't necessarily change, right? And so sometimes that self-accountability can take you really far. And if you are someone that, you know, desires to be more inclusive as a leader and you're investing in these things, it's great. But at some point it may become an inconvenience. And that's when it becomes a challenge to say, are you going to stick it out and keep doing it? even though it becomes difficult to make it work with whatever else is going on in your life. And that's where I think the rubber really hits the road and what it challenges people and why it's so uncomfortable is because it really does force people to make changes about how they live their day-to-day life and what they think that they know about it. Right. And it's, it is just so much, so much unlearning and so much truth telling that it, it, it doesn't sit well when you've had access to things so easily and never been challenged in your life. Right. Right. So, and you have to start admitting to your like the truth to yourself too, right? You have to start facing your biases. You have to start facing yourself well, and giving things up. Yeah. Like that's what it comes down to too: giving up that opportunity or or sharing that opportunity with yes. others. And that I think is something that's very difficult for people to do. Because power um, is so as, as addictive, seen. right? Mm-hmm. It's intoxicating, yeah. and and like I also think like you know, I shouldn't just sit here and say like, oh, white men need to do more. They do, of course. Um, But it's also white women in leadership roles. Like I hope they are doing that reverse mentoring. And, you know, for our listeners, like if you are yourself in a leadership role or know somebody and have the access or influence on them, like here, that's a great tip. Like that's a, I think that's an amazing way to start. And, um, you know, I'm trying to think of how I can maybe encourage things like that to happen within my the corporation I work for. Well, is that kind of what we're doing now with you, Shazia, like having this conversation? I mean, I think it's like whatever can amplify those stories and those experiences, right? I think that's, it starts small and it's like, what more can you do beyond the conversation to start to walk the walk a little bit more, right? And it's like, are you, what changes are you going to start making to start, you know, infiltrating your life with a little bit more of that influence and that experience? And I think everybody has that circle of influence within their lives that they can start to make changes within. And that's where it becomes so pertinent for each individual to think about their own changes and how they're going to be able to do some of those things. You think about things like, I have a friend who's very, very passionate about climate change. She always talks about, that individual thing that you can do at your own household level to start making those small changes doesn't feel like it's going to have a massive impact, but then it starts a bit of the ripple effect and it starts to normalize these types of conversations. And suddenly it's like a line in the sand about what you're going to put up with and what you're not going to be okay with. And that's how change actually starts to happen. Right. And those movements are really amazing to start the fire But to keep it burning and to keep it going, it needs to happen at that individual level, right? To have those discussions and to seek out those experiences that are unlike yours. Wow. I love that. And, you know, I love everything that you've said today and appreciate, Lauren, and I appreciate having you on, having your opinions being shared here. And uh, I'm sure our listeners will, too. And, you know, this is, you know, one Thing that we're doing to help amplify what we can and, and spread awareness and information about it. And uh, Lauren, I think we, you know, uh, 
we still have homework, I think. So <laughs> things that more to do. So, I mean, Shazia, this has been great. We really appreciate talking to you today. And it was nice to see you again, too. Yeah, yeah really nice. it's been fantastic. Yeah. yeah and I, I, I do, you know, like every time we have conversations um, with any of our guests, we usually take something away. And, you know, I think just when we were sitting here still talking, the, the wheels start turning in your mind of like how mm-hmm. we can make certain changes. And, and yeah, like, like for me, it's, it's definitely continuing those conversations with my husband and my sons and making sure that there's yeah. an understanding that you're not better than me or anyone else for that matter. Everybody deserves the, like equal opportunity and, um, and the respect of course too. And, um, you know, it, it my sons, I think, will are there, and my husband certainly wouldn't disagree. It's just he didn't – he's not conditioned that way, right? Mm-hmm. So it's something – it's more of that ignorance is bliss than that, like, intentional, like, um, bias or racism well, or anything. Well, it's systemic exactly. issues, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, no, I, I – like – totally echo what Jess says, Shazia. Like, it's just, it's been great. And I love your candidness, but I also love like your approach. Like you, you make it very comfortable, which isn't your job to do. Um, but it's appreciated because it, it helps, you know, you don't, you don't come off defensive or anything like that. You, you come across like you're genuinely just want people to like have some, some knowledge to make these changes. So, um, I hope our listeners enjoy it. And, um, Tell our listeners where they can find you and access you for more information. Yeah. And I will say as well, like I am one experience from a perspective of I'm very privileged. I mean, I I grew up with really nothing, very working class, but educated, privileged in a lot of ways. Um, And I'm the experience of a person of color, but not the experience of a black or an indigenous person. And those are very unique and so I really encourage you to sort of seek out some of those as well for the podcast and an opportunity to mm-hmm. to have those conversations because I learned so much from those experiences myself on how to be a better ally and um, I you can find the color gap on all of the popular podcast platforms I release episodes every second Tuesday and they're usually about 20 minutes long unless they're an interview then they usually go a lot longer because you know the conversation goes in a lot of different directions um but i i hope that it's valuable for folks just to even get a perspective on a journey that may be different than their own even if the career advice and the perspective is not completely relevant um to everybody it's really really obviously tailored towards um racialized women and women of color but uh it's i i hope it's an opportunity to explore Um, different lived experiences and perspectives and I infuse a lot of really unique topics in the platform around um, spirituality and different things that I think are are also really relevant to anyone listening so you can find me at any of the podcast platforms on Instagram it's the color gap and it's spelled um, the Canadian way so c-o-l-o-u-r and um, I'm also on Twitter but I'm not super active on there and I'm trying to get better at the social media game but I'm a one person shop. It's hard. It's so hard. So uh, it's <laughs> yeah. growing slowly. It's a lot. But yeah, so you can find me any of those. And then my contact details are always in the description box of each of the episodes if everyone, anyone ever wants to reach out. Amazing. And as Amazing. always, you can follow us at perspective underscore podcast. We are not on Twitter because we're not in the Twitter game. 
It's too hard. No, we're um, not even there. No, we're not. <laughs> uh, but no, like, honestly, this has just been such a great conversation. And, and you're just so easy to talk to, Shazia. And you, you know, it's like your, your voice is also very soothing, too. So, <laughs> I mean, even if people just want to, like, have a bit of a decompression moment, they should listen to your <laughs> podcast just to be soothed. But also take in the info. But take it's in very the important. info. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, with that, thank you again. And, uh, We'll talk again, for sure. We'd love to have you back on to even, like, get more into, like, career discussion, too. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much. Thanks, Shazia. Bye. Bye. Bye.